What is a tribe? A tribe, by definition, is a social division in a traditional society consisting of families or communities linked by social, economic, religious, or blood ties with a common culture and dialect. Welcome to the Rosk Podcast, episode 31. I am taking a gamble on whether it's 31 or not. Hopefully it is. In this episode, we're going to talk about the concept of tribes. Now, that's the official definition of what a tribe is, but to quote a recurring reference on this podcast, Seth Godin, his sort of colloquial or more, I would say, for lack of a better word, artistic definition of the word tribe is to describe people like us who do things like this. And this brings us straight into the first sort of insight for this podcast, and that is that tribes are groups of people like us who do things like this. People who uh, share a commonality, who unite upon a, a relation in terms of action and behavior, not necessarily based on position. Now, when we think of this concept of tribes and we think of it being described as people who share commonalities in terms of beliefs and behaviors, you would think that with the internet and social media in specific, that the idea of having a global tribe would be easier than ever. Quite the contrary, it seems to be the reality is that we've become more compartmentalized than ever before. And I think healthcare is falling into that same behavior pattern or Maybe not is falling into it, but certainly has not broken out of it. And in fact, I don't think there is any better of a sort of analogy than the idea of tribes when it comes to how we behave within healthcare, whether it's between different residencies, whether it's this or that uh, specialty, this or that department, this floor, that floor, this unit, that unit. Doctors versus nurses versus PAs versus techs versus attendings versus residents versus all these different you versus me type things. Now, the way we communicate in the world is heavily influenced by the way we think, but also the habits that we form. And habits don't necessarily mean physical actions. It's not just something like brushing your teeth or tying your shoes. Habits can also be the psychological habit loops that we create the way we automatically think about one particular event that happens to us when it happens over and over again. It can be the way we think about ourselves when we have convinced ourselves that we are, you know, incapable of doing this or we always do this a certain way. Cutting out the whole thought process from A to B to C to D down to Z in our brain, the brain just goes from A to Z. If it sees that pattern enough times, it just skips the why and the how and just goes straight to the what. And so this, you can imagine, has a heavy effect on the way we think about situations that arise. And it also affects the way we think about other people who are not necessarily part of our crew or part of our circle or people who we automatically assume don't understand what we are going through, whether it's as a person, as an individual, or whether it's as an entire unit or an entire team. And the f interesting thing is that I think this is one of the biggest reasons why debriefing is so significant that I don't think enough people put into words. This idea that, you know, we always 
realize and acknowledge very, I think, unanimously that debriefing, when done frequently and well, if not perfectly, creates a sense of camaraderie that just comes out of nowhere. It makes it easier for people to sort of discuss errors and discuss mistakes, and it makes it easier for just communication outside of the critical situation, outside of the simulated case. And why is that? And I think it has a lot to do with this idea, the way we think and the habits we form and the sort of the cliques or the groups or the tribes that we end up developing. By debriefing, you spend that time creating space to open up about certain errors or certain mistakes, but it also creates a conversation and a common ground for people to communicate with each other on a particular issue. And it also opens the door to the understanding that this is a process and it makes it more comfortable the next time the team comes together in a situation like that, whether it's an actual case and you debrief or it's a simulation and you debrief. Or if you have a system like a lot of hospitals do where you have sort of a huddle and maybe a debrief at the end of a shift. By creating the habit of, of having that space, by creating a habit of making that space a way to think about things, like with the mantra that's always stated when coming together in those situations, that creates the open end for each conversation that occurs to sort of build on the last. But also, it creates a space for the culture or the context to be open-ended in the sense that it will continue the next time around. And sometimes it could even become a situation where you look forward to those moments because you know that you're flaws are going to be accepted. You know that your mistakes are going to be acknowledged as purely objective things that occurred and seen in the context of how it can be changed the next time. That's probably a major reason why something like therapy works so well, why having a psychiatrist or a therapist of any kind, why it probably works so well, because you create the context, you create the space, and you form this language, so to speak, between you and the person or people. And it just makes it easier to connect, whether it's on something that's of common ground or connect over something that is, you know, an error to one person, but a an avenue of correction for the other, if that makes sense. And then all of a sudden, you might find that when people in this example debrief together enough times, one of you might find that you're almost looking forward to the moment where you can have the debriefing to be able to offload and talk about that mistake that was made, not only to feel the relief that you've talked about it, because that does have some level of relief, but also knowing that when you're in that situation, when you're in that context, when you're with the people who are speaking the same language, you can put the mistake out on the table. You can put the sort of suboptimal performance in that moment out on the table and know that someone's going to pick it up and break it down and give back to you something you can walk away with to improve the next time. That is one of the benefits and one of the highlights of having a quote-unquote tribe or a quote-unquote group of people like us who do things like this, to quote Seth Godin again. Now, Throwing into the mix the fact that healthcare is a very demanding calling, 
And it's the type of thing that really does drain you, not even from full to empty. A lot of times we come into the situation already sort of running low and the the environment and the field and the demands of what we do don't really care how much we have left. They're going to take the same amount from us. When you're constantly hitting, when that needle is constantly bouncing off of the E, you it, you can't always, you don't always have the cognitive bandwidth to be able to reason through things and be able to see things in an abstract way or philosophize in every situation. You're going to fall into certain habit patterns. We don't rise to the occasion. We fall to the level of our training. This is part of why we try to ingrain certain behaviors, certain actions like doing a procedure or certain ways of thinking, because if we ingrain those enough for them to become habit loops, then when we do exhaust ourselves, we fall back to those things. And every time we fall back to it, the hope is that that fallback is at a level higher than it was before. But the fact of the matter is that isn't always the case. And we're humans and everybody that we work with has a differing level of stress and a differing ability to handle that. But what that all ultimately amounts to is the same endpoint, which is each individual's threshold, each individual's fuse, each individual's ability to think complexly and abstractly about every situation that occurs. Now, to take an analogy from the sort of animal world, um, we've all experienced situations where we'll see a baby animal of some sort being left by the pack, left by the mom, and we hope looking at that animal that the mom comes back and takes them because we can't stand to see that because we know that it's it's certain death if that baby is not found. And to use that as an analogy, I think we can relate to that because while it isn't literal survival, actual survival of us in terms of life and death, it is survival of us in terms of the social norm, in terms of the culture that we function in. As a resident, I'm sure you can totally understand this. As a nurse who might be, who might recall starting out in a certain unit, um, anybody who is within a certain clique or niche can certainly relate to this, especially during the time where you're trying to prove yourself to yourself and to those in your group. In these situations, a couple of things come together to form what could be great or it could be not so great. We just talked about this idea of that cognitive bandwidth that you have, and the more exhausted you are and the more overwhelmed you are, the lower that cognitive, the, the lower of a cognitive load you can tolerate before you break. Now add to that the fact that you need to perform to a level that keeps you accepted within your group. That now adds to the level of stress you already had. And now it's a matter of not only do I not have the space to be able to you know, take a step back from my emotional reaction or take a step back from the situation and handle things in a more objective way. Not only do I not have the bandwidth to do that if I wanted to, but it's not even desirable at this point because the ones who are judging me, the ones who are determining whether or not I'm valuable enough to stay within that pack are judging me based on something else. And sometimes that something else isn't always great things, which is why you get situations where people will join a certain pack and immediately start talking about other packs 
other groups, other tribes in a certain way, with a certain rhetoric, with a certain set of vocabulary. And you begin to wonder, like, you haven't even been in this field long enough to be able to form those opinions. Where are you getting this from? And that's where the habits and that's where the language and that's where the commonalities come in. When you notice that there are certain commonalities in the group that you need to be accepted by, you will abandon what is previous in order to do the things that you know will make you accepted. That's how peer pressure works. And now add to that the extra layer of the fact that at the end of those situations when you are functioning on your own, but as a representative of that group, you have to report back to that group. And so the things that you're going to do and say in order to validate what you're going to bring back to the group, it's all going to conform to the behaviors and the actions and the sayings and the doings of those above you whose approval you're seeking. And so begins that vicious cycle. And that's a good point to bring in insight number two, which is a prompt to think about this understanding of groups and tribes and uh, cliques. Think about the duality that we just talked about and ask yourself, thinking of a situation in your position where this applies and where it can be used in a form of improvement. And this is where something really, really important about the definition of tribes comes in. One being something that we mentioned in the definition and another thing being something we didn't mention. The first thing, what we mentioned already, is the idea of that language or dialect, the way, that form of communication that exists between two people within a group. We've all experienced something like that. We've all seen it on the road. I personally think about it every time I see two motorcyclists driving past each other in opposite directions, and they'll give each other like a little peace sign just to acknowledge each other. Nothing's happening. They might not even know each other. Or, you know, another thing I actually recently noticed, because I only started running in public over the last, like, year. I used to run in high school, but that was high school. Now when I run, I notice that it's just common courtesy that you wave or acknowledge a runner who's coming in the other direction. And the feeling that it creates in you is so profound. Simon Sinek gives an example of, like, when you travel to a foreign country and you're trying to you know, navigate the language and you're doing your, your best to learn the language and use it, and all of a sudden you hear somebody who also speaks your language. In this case, I'm in the US, so imagine you come across someone who also speaks English. But not only that, imagine you hear someone who speaks not only English, but also the same New York accent that you have or the same Southern accent that you have. Now you're just like, you feel more familiar with that person and you might never have known that person in, ever in your life. All of a sudden you feel closer to that person than you've ever felt to anybody back home. It's because speaking the same language, and in this case, literally speaking the same language, but also the inherent aspects of what you have in common, bringing you to and from the same place in that sense, you know, figuratively speaking the same language, it creates a space of relatability and, and comfort. It creates a sense of camaraderie right off the bat. That can be used in either direction. It's a tool and it can be used in either form of the duality that we talked about. And that's where the other aspect of tribes comes in, but we didn't mention, but we've mentioned this podcast before is leadership. Now, when people come into a situation where they recognize each other's language, 
and I'm saying that both literally and figuratively, when they come into a space of commonality, when they come into that space of familiarity, that begins to pave the way for communication to occur, for feedback to occur, for co-creation, co, um, co-authorship, peer recognition, peer um, mentorship almost. It creates a space for all of that, as dramatic as that might sound. But it can also create a path for someone to lead that way. Sometimes, a lot of times, people fall into those categories where they recognize they're within a bubble with a bunch of people, and not everyone knows what to do in those situations. The easiest thing that tends to happen is people commiserate, because it's easy to relate on those things. And those are the areas where you want to feel like you're not alone, more than anything else. Left unchecked, we already know the repercussions of that over the long term. It has the power to create another culture. What culture you create depends on what direction you give to that energy of familiarity and togetherness or, you know, speaking the same language, so to speak. But in every interaction, every debriefing, every critical situation, every resuscitation, these are all moments to be able to speak the same language, to feel that level of comfort. And talking of debriefing, building that camaraderie and that connection through debriefing is what makes the resuscitation easier. Not just because you went over the things that you could do better, but because you're now with a team that you are now one level higher in terms of comfort and familiarity than you were prior to that debrief. And that space for comfort brings the tone of the room down and it just makes communication easier. Even if that communication is outside of the algorithm that's been set, outside of the typical training that you might have had, when you break away from that set training path or the set plan, it it creates the context for that communication to occur smoothly without stress and subsequently to that more streamlined, more clear, more direct, and more productive. Now, the beauty from from all of this is that when you create that space, you create a well-oiled machine, you create the ease of communication, you create the smile on people's faces when they are working with certain people or when they come to work, period. That starts to catch on. People start to hear about that. People then now all of a sudden want to be part of that team when they're on this shift. People want to be part of this shift when they're working in that department. People want to work in that department when they come to this hospital. People want to work at that hospital when they get this degree. Those bubbles start to grow. But the more interesting thing about it too is that building that ability to communicate within your group builds the ability to communicate, period. Because it makes you more conscious of things. It's funny because an example I was thinking about today. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine and we were talking about these situations where the ego gets the best of us. When we know people are taking advantage of us, for example. And some of that is genuine, like, you know, being taken advantage of is objectively not something anybody should have to go through involuntarily. But there's a por- there's a portion of it that's emotional. Recognizing that emotional reaction is the most important part. And we were having this discussion about the idea of treating every situation like that as a moment where you stop and don't allow yourself to react emotionally. Now, the tricky thing about that that we were talking about was there are situations where 
you're straight up being taken advantage of. You're straight up being disrespected. So if you were to immediately just stop the emotion and not let that affect you, aren't you letting that happen to you? Like, shouldn't you be reacting a certain way? And while we were talking about that, the idea came up of if you spend enough time training that ability to put a piece of glass between you and the emotional response, between you and the reaction, you've trained one aspect of your ability to assess the situation. If you do that enough times, when you come across a situation where someone is actually taking advantage of you and disrespecting you and lowering you, you can now react to that situation, but your training up until then has taught you not to just go, okay, now I can go into DEFCON 4. Now I can just go white hot flash of fury. You've all, like, you create a habit where when you hit that emotion, you're like, oh, now I deserve to say something about this, but wait, there's this emotional thing coming here. I also know how to deal with that. Another weird example goes back to driving. And those of you who know me know that everything I think about goes back to driving. But when I learned how to drive manual, I had already spent about a year driving an automatic. So when you learn to drive manual, I remember thinking to myself, I do not know how I would have learned how to drive if I had to learn all the rules of driving and the habits of driving while learning how to drive manual. But you take care of one set of habits first and then you tackle the other. What am I talking about right now? Going back to this idea of things catching on, when you practice that ability to communicate with each other and practice that ability to filter out certain thoughts, certain negativity, certain emotions, certain unproductive thought patterns, when two bubbles come near each other, i.e. two groups or two tribes or two people from two different groups come together, whether they're coming together in unity or they're coming together butting heads, there is some level of habit that's been developed in being able to communicate effectively. And there's some habit that's developed in being able to communicate in a way that is objective and free from a reaction. You're not going to speak or deal with a situation or handle a stressful event in any other way except the best way to deal with this right here and now, regardless of what's happening around me, regardless of what's happening to me, I can assess the situation and understand the way it should be done. And in a recent podcast, we talked about the idea of doing more than your fair share. This relates to that because it's sort of a similar thing where it's like, I could do this and this could lead to better, but they're not doing anything. So why should I? It That all goes away. And it's the same sort of thing we're talking about here when two groups come close to each other and they're of different ways of thinking, different thought patterns, different behaviors, but they know how to navigate a situation and they know how to navigate communication. They've developed empathy. I didn't even expect that to come up, but there it is again. Now you can better navigate that situation. And when that happens, those bubbles start to overlap and then you create a network. So by doing all of this, what you're doing is laying the groundwork, right? Whether you're the position of leadership or follower, you're, you're part of a collective that is laying groundwork for communication to occur. And communication is one of the biggest foundations in any situation you deal with in the critical or non-critical in the resuscitative environments or in just the administrative environments. In every aspect of healthcare, the ability to communicate and the ability to see the other person and understand rather than just talk past each other, which is what the global sort of compartmentalization has become, everyone just talking past each other. When you're able to stop for a moment and be like, what's the situation here? What's the end goal? What are we really doing here? 
and how can I make this situation better for myself and for the other person, that's when you start to build upon that groundwork. And when those bubbles start to overlap, now you're creating that network, like I said, and that network is moving towards building a culture that now can't be broken. I mentioned this a very long time ago, and it's sort of the foundation of what this whole brand and project is about. But it's the idea that I'm not interested in breaking the bad culture aspects of healthcare that exist. Just present the better option. And if you have enough individuals who want to implement that better option and are willing to do it at a loss, quote unquote, in the beginning, enough people will catch on. That effect of wanting to be part of that tribe, part of that group will start to spread. And then eventually the bubbles get so big, they overlap as we've been making these odd analogies. And when that happens, that culture that becomes an alternative option, a better option exists for some people, for new people, for unfamiliar people to choose to go that way as opposed to the other way, or to just be around that culture more than the other. And then the other culture just dies off. It takes a long time. It might take longer than your or my lifetime, but it's not going to happen on its own. Or if it doesn't happen because of us, then someone else is going to take the short end of the stick and, and do something with it and make that difference. But it's not going to be us. It can be us if we just constantly remind ourselves of that uphill battle. And it is a constant uphill battle. There's never a moment where it becomes coasting. There's never a moment where it just becomes habit. It's a constant reminder. And it, has, it ebbs and flows. But remembering that and remembering the ultimate impact that it can have, the ripple effect that it can have when you create that space to communicate with each other and then people catch on and want to be part of it, it grows on its own. And then you don't have to worry about going on defense or going on the offense. You just exist and continue to build and then everything else just becomes less appealing. We'll see you next time.